Welcome to From the Valley podcast. I'm your host Tim Wilshire. This is episode 46 of the podcast, and I'm start at the top of the show by I just uh, mentioning that uh, obviously we just had an election result. So um, I'd just like to, I guess, congratulate our local member Trevor Evans who who got back into uh, Parliament. Uh, so congratulations to Trevor. And obviously we've still got the same Prime Minister at the moment in Scott Morrison. So. Just thought I'd uh, mention that at the top of the show, but uh, we're here to talk today uh, uh, with an interesting uh, Deutschland guest, the second one that we've had on the show actually. So, welcome along, Frank Mueller. Yeah, good morning, Tim. How are you? Yeah, so Frank uh, wears a couple of different hats, um, works currently for Finn Business Brokers, uh, but also at Log uh, Shipbroking. Is that what the, the other? Yeah, at Log Logistics. Yes, at Log Logistics. Yeah. Uh, so I guess Frank, uh, whereabouts uh, were you born in Germany, and uh, what was sort of early life like in Germany? Yeah, born in uh, in Hamburg, up in the north, uh, second largest port in Europe. So very much uh, sort of a shipping related type uh, environment. Uh, family uh, family also involved in shipping in the early days, uh, and um, yeah, life in Germany was good at the time. All the family lived within probably about 400, 500 meters of each other. The school was 50 meters away, literally just across the street. Uh, lived in apartments, but uh, yeah, life was um, very cozy and uh, you didn't really have to go very far for anything. Mm, so it's all, it was all, everything you needed was there yeah. Yeah. As, a, as a kid. So, um, and what was the sort of family dynamic like? Was it a large family that you were part of? No, uh, only child. Um, only child. Uh, okay. Parents gro- uh, grown up during the during the war years uh, in Germany, um, and um, I guess there wasn't much time to think about family too much in those days. Everybody just tried to get up and back onto their feet in the in the uh, mid forties, late fifties, and so on. So. Yeah, only child, and my parents, incidentally, um, um, are only children as well, both of them. So I've got um, very little family left, actually, in Germany. Yeah, you know, that's pretty rare that you've got you know, an only child mother, an only child father, yeah. and then yourself as an only child, but it sort of keeps the trend going, I guess. Um, and obviously, when you sort of, uh, you've had children, haven't you? Yeah, I've got two boys. And you've sort of made it into two now, so. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, yeah. Two. But yeah. on YouTube. Expanding. So, so a bit, bit about Hamburg life. So, um, what, what can you remember what the school was like that you sort of went to? Was it sort of, uh, uh, was, was, how did you find learning? Was it something you enjoyed or? Not really. <laughs> was uh, more the outdoor type guy wanting to go places and uh, yes. didn't really enjoy school too much. Was really bad at English. Because um, obviously everyone sort of learns English, I guess, at the school there. Yeah, you start in the, in the what, what we call here yeah, secondary school, I guess. Um, you start to learn English. So um, kids, once you leave school, you're reasonably proficient at, at, uh, at speaking English in a, in a casual sort of manner. Mm. So that was quite good. I mean, even in my days um, to do that. But there wasn't yet uh, the what you've got today, Netflix, YouTube, all this kind of stuff where youngsters can actually pick up a language and that, that didn't exist in those days and obviously not mobile phones or anything like that. Mm. Uh, so you were still, it was very, very German. Mm. And what about, um, I mean, most people in Germany sort of love their soccer. I mean, were you a fanatic about soccer or football? I wouldn't say fanatic, but my, 
my grandfather played um, soccer at, until a very late age, basically. So before the war, after the war, and so we went to Hamburg SV, which is the, the local Bundesliga club. Um, we went to them and watched them a lot. Um, weren't fanatic members, I would say, but um, yeah. I think everybody in Hamburg sort of has either either that club or there's one other club, bigger club that they support. So we were the Hamburg supporters, and other people supported St. Pauli, which is the second club in uh, in Hamburg that of, of of larger size. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess what, what was your um, what was your first job that you had as a teenager? What was the first? Job? Yeah, we've um, like I just mentioned shipping. Yeah. So I fell into that as well. Um, I've worked um, as an intern um, for the and at the newly established container terminal in 1974. So um, a long while back, um, but um, uh, through the contacts that we had through the family, we all worked in, in, in that kind of environment. All sides of my my parents worked on in there as well. Sort of was a sort of natural sort of path for me as well to go into to do that and, and have a, get a bit of a, a sniff of what it's like to work in the shipping industry. So fairly young, getting um, yeah, I was fourteen, getting involved in the shipping industry, and that was sort of inherited in a way from yeah from the yeah, family. Third generation basically going into that kind of environment. Yeah. Mm. So that was your first, and that was your sort of first full-time job too in that sort of area. No, actually, I went to the police. <laughs> Oh, you actually, were you actually a policeman, were you? Yeah, yeah for four and a half years, so I did the, uh, I did the, um, the basic training uh, initially, uh, two and a half years, and then um, uh, got into, uh, it's, it's a mobile unit, and a lot of the youngsters have finished the, the training, get into, the, get into a mobile unit, and you do three types of jobs. And in those days, in talking late 70s, um, anti-nuclear power station demonstrations was really big. We had some demonstrations where people, like a million people, packed together to demonstrate against it. Um, so we were demonstrations, football, so stadium security, yep. and red light district yep. in Hamburg were the three venues that uh, youngsters would get into when you were in the police at that time. And that was also one of the reasons I ended up leaving at the end of the day. Um, yeah. It was not a very satisfying mm. experience. So I guess what sort of got you into doing, wanting to do police work to begin with at that young age? I saw, I saw um, that sort of, um, in, 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 a, in a way, being quite naive to think that you actually um, can change something or help people. Uh, and it didn't turn out like that at all, really. So I was, um, yeah, not a good choice at the end of the day. And after four and a half years, I decided to basically go back to school. Um, and through that also then followed my apprenticeship, which led me back to shipping. Okay. That's, for, I guess, your sort of young adult years in the police force. Yeah. And, um, and obviously that, you obviously had a, an idea that you could probably Save the save Hamburg, save the world. Yeah, or yeah. I mean that kind of stuff um, that you maybe think yeah. of when you have a bit of a social conscience. Yeah, you know, and, and you feel we had a we had a even in those days a reasonably large drug problem. Yeah, um, and uh, so I felt 
you, know, you could do something there and, and change things there, but I looked uh, very quickly to know that um, the underbelly of, of Hamburg mm. uh, was something not to be dabbled in, basically. Mm. So, I mean, I didn't know that this much about Hamburg, so Hamburg has a bit of an underbelly, and um, it, it's really, you know, there is it sort of throughout Germany, is it known as one of the more crime areas of Germany? Well, it's got a large red light district. Yeah. And with that comes crime. Yeah, so red light district, crime. It's all linked, yeah. linked together. So, I mean, yeah, it, it's um, notorious for its mm. red light districts throughout the world. If you say mm. St. Pauli, mm. maybe not this much, that much anymore today, but uh, mm. in the old days, if you said St. Pauli to someone, in Europe, they will know what that is and yeah. what that means. Yeah. Is there sort of, um, I guess in your young sort of adult life, was there a sort of wish at all to sort of, ex you, you obviously had the exploring mentality, you wanted to go out and see the world. Um, did you see much of the world in your younger years? Did you sort of do the travel when you were young? I was in 1980 in Australia backpacking. Yeah. So, and, and in the previous years, um, I think um, probably uh, when I was 16, I was in France on my own. Yeah. Uh, 17, France again, went camping and stuff like that. Italy, Spain, all those countries in Europe, um, Denmark. Um, so sort of exploring in the in our free time, exploring mm. the surrounding countries basically uh, from from Germany. So yes, I was always interested in travel. Mm. Uh, and and, and, and some young too. So, um, tell us a bit about uh, shipbroking. How? Tell us a bit about the industry. How you sort of, um, you know, what you've been involved in it for, for a, a number of years, probably thirty years, I think I read, or probably uh, even longer. Plus, oh yes, plus <laughs> because I started in officially in, as an apprentice in nineteen eighty two. Mm. So you, you dial that back yeah, nineteen eighty two so, to now. So, so obviously you got involved in that through some family <coughs> linkage. Um, Tell us about what you enjoy about shipbroking. Uh, what what sort of what is it? Tell us a bit about the listeners a bit about it. I guess. Yeah. Um, so shipping in, in in general is a very fragmented industry, um, and most people know very very little about it. And and the other thing is that, that I think everybody can, um, I guess, uh, sort of follow is that you hear nothing about it in the news. I mean, if you ask no, anyone. <clears throat> The most you hear about it is when there's a ship that, that gets stranded on the barrier reef basically here in Australia and other than that you don't really hear anything about shipping whatsoever. Uh, now the shipping industry in, in Europe is, is and specifically in Hamburg is very large. Again I said earlier on Hamburg second largest port in Europe um, so a lot of people are in the in the sort of uh, logistic shipping warehousing type industry and surrounding services um, so as an apprentice, um, I was working uh, for a company that had various departments, um, one of them being shipbroking. Uh, so I did an apprenticeship basically as a shipbroker uh, and uh, followed, up, followed that up basically by, uh, after the apprenticeship, also working as a junior <coughs> shipbroker uh, for a company that had linkages into um, Belgium, Antwerp. Um, and the company I was working with also was a Hamburg broker, but they were basically working for a Belgium-based ship owner. And um, yeah, through that you gain experience. Um, and I think one of the, the, the good 
things, the positive things about shipbroking uh, is that um, English is the, the one and only language. So it really doesn't matter where you are in the world. English is the preferred language when it comes to shipbroking. Mm -hmm. Whether you deal with people in China or South America okay. or Russia, it's all, all based on the English language. Mm -hmm. And that makes it very easy to move around. Mm -hmm. you know, so, and that's exactly what happened to me as well at the end of the event. Mm -hmm. So I left Germany um, in 1988, went to South Africa, um, spent four and a half years in South Africa. Did you live there? What part of did you live in South Africa? Uh, Johannesburg. Okay, Johannesburg. <coughs> yeah. And what was that like back in those days? Yeah, it was uh, um, pre, uh, pre the Nelson Mandela release. Yeah, so it's um, still in the apartheid era, really. Yeah, it was still in the apartheid era. Um, yeah, I mean, coming from Germany and not knowing anything about having servants, that was an unbelievable experience because I mean. In, in, in my days growing up, you had to do everything yourself. You, you, you came to South Africa, and the question it, 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 you had everything. And uh, in the office, you had a tea lady, you had someone who was washing the cars. Then, I mean, it was just a very surreal experience, really, to come mm -hmm. to a country where one part of the country sits back and lets everything to be done by other people who were basically just paid a minimal wage to, to get certain jobs done. So as a, as a German, that was unbelievable uh, going there. Um, and uh, the, the release of uh, Mandela turned everything upside down. Um, in, I think it was 1981. And then there was a year um, of so transition. So you, you were still there at the time? Or? Yeah, okay. there was a year of transition. And uh, at the end of 1991, um, I started to sort of put my hand up uh, as our head office in Hamburg. Uh, because I was seconded to to South Africa from a, from a, a German ship owning business that I was working for at the time, and uh, I said, "Look, guys, um, I think the situation becomes a little bit dicey, not to my liking anymore. The crime rate jumped up; um, it just wasn't safe anymore." Uh, and so um, I left in uh, late '92, um, went back to Hamburg for two months and then got shipped out to New Zealand um, and uh, stayed in Auckland for a year. Again, for the same business actually, for the same business owner. Um, did what I did there in New Zealand and um, left New Zealand at the end of 93 um, and was um, um, sent to Singapore. Uh, wow. Seven years Singapore. So actually lived in Singapore seven years for the rest of that decade, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I left. Uh, I left. Um, well, I was in <coughs> Singapore '94 to 2001, mm. and then from then on um, came to Australia and to Brisbane. So would have, with Singapore in those years, it, you would have seen a lot of change in that. Was that the time where it was sort of really building up a bit? Or yeah, yeah, it was already. I mean, '94 when I got there. Um, one of the now sort of areas where people go to, like most tourists uh, take a wonder, is at Bolt Key. Uh, Bolt Key in those days didn't exist as to what it is today, as yep. in the restaurants and bars mm -hmm. and, and different sort of that place by the river. Yeah. Um, so in '94, that was just under under development. 
um, and the surrounding areas, none of the very, very tall buildings that you see today was there, and, and certainly not um, the uh, Marina Bay Sands, no, or the surfboard, sort of sort of I mean, that's, that's been in last five years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's only a recent development, but even in those days, uh, it, it was still a, a, a town with a lot of space. Mm. Uh, it, didn't, yeah. it didn't feel crowded. Mm. Um, is yeah. it, is it always, was it always a clean place back in those days as well? Yeah, yeah, it, it's always been like that. Um, I mean, it's clean, clean for the for the touristy areas. Yep. Uh, and, and I'm not saying it's not clean in the other areas, but yep. it is more normal traditional life as you find it in Malaysia and Thailand mm. and Vietnam and other places as well. Mm. If it's, it's more traditional life and and feel about it as you have in all the other Asian, South Asian countries. Uh, but yes, the government in those days already made quite an effort to keep things in the, in the main areas where tourists would, um, would um, live or stay in hotels and stuff like that and go for a wander. That was all kept very, very clean. So there for seven years, that's uh, obviously a bit of a, a, bit of a stay. Um, and what was the shipping industry like? Uh, what, what sort of attracted you to Singapore? Uh, was it like a job-related uh, post? Um, yeah, it's a job-related post. And Singapore, uh, already in those days, um, uh, I think was, um, in terms of size of port, was number two or number one even. Yeah, so always, very always port, competing yeah. with Hong Kong in those days. Yeah, each. Um, so very large, very large shipping community. Um, our building uh, in Cantonment Road, um, where our office was, was essentially all shipping, and it was a, a tall building with, I don't know, mm. 30 floors or something like that, and it was all shipping businesses. Mm. And a lot of, a lot, very large expat community. Mm. Anything from English, Dutch, Germans, um, I mean, you name it, everybody was there. Mm. So with shipping industry now in 2019, I mean, if someone's a young person trying to start a, a career in, in what you've sort of, uh, similar to what you've been doing um, over the last 30 plus years, um, is there much of a career, do you think, now compared to, to what you went through? Is it still gonna, it's still gonna be there for quite a period of time? And what, what are the, some of the, I guess, some of the, the main skills um, that you sort of not, not only develop, but really sort of need to develop? Yeah. I think um, I think the, um, uh, what's interesting is that um, the shipping, the, the world of shipping is very fragmented. So, a uh, say for argument, like a software that would take care of the shipping business as such, the communication, the interaction between people, doesn't really exist because there are just too many areas in shipping where you can be quite specialized now my specialty is heavy lift type cargoes project related cargoes so that's anything that doesn't fit in a container basically and say weighs more than 30 tons yeah that is very specialized like in, yes, Aus yes. like in australia i would I could probably claim um, to be one of the very few people that work independently as a specialist in that particular area. There are bigger companies, freight forwarders and so on, that have project divisions mm. where they have specialists like that as well. But I'm self-employed, so as a self-employed person, I'm probably one of the very few people in Australia that actually do this. I'm, I'm, 
I'm guessing you can count the number of people that do what I do on, on one hand in Australia. That's that's uh, very very specialised, isn't it? Yeah. Very. So to look at into that and come back to your earlier question about youngsters. Yeah. Um, I've found that in particular here in Australia, there's no proper path in terms yeah. of education. Yeah, I didn't think there would be, but yeah. you can. Most people that I've come come across that are young people have have sort of started in shipping. Um, often have fallen into it without knowing exactly what they got into. They just looked for a job in an office that had something to do with trading, trade, import, export type yeah. stuff without really realizing what the business or the company that, that they've joined was actually doing. Yeah. So most people will just have a business degree. Um, and um, if you are willing to, willing to be open to um, relocate yourself throughout your work life. I think uh, shipping still today holds uh, immense opportunity for anyone who wants to get into it. I mean, it's, it's something that can take you around the world. It can take you anywhere um, if you're open to travel, if you're open to um, living in different places. And um, some of the people that uh, I've basically, uh, say about 20 or 30 years my junior, I've seen them come through even here in Brisbane, uh, who are now living in far-flung places, mm -hmm. Singapore being one, but even further away, back to yeah. Europe or other places. Yeah. I guess, and then where, where did you go after 2001? Where did you go after Singapore? Was it? Yeah, it came to Brisbane. And that's when Brisbane rest of the time? Yeah, yeah Brisbane since 2001. Yeah. And it was an opportunity, just um, had two small, I got married in Singapore. So my wife's um, Singaporean Chinese. Yes. Yep. Um, got married, had two boys in Singapore, and um, the opportunity arose um, to come to um, to Brisbane, where the same company that I was already working for in Singapore uh, had an office uh, set up for um, uh, services running out of Asia into the Australia in the Pacific region, so the services into New Caledonia, Fiji, mm. Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, and they're sort of all linked together. And they had an office in Brisbane. And that office, I think that was opened up in 95, but in 2001, the opportunity came to come down here. Uh, and uh, at the time, we took that, that step to relocate to, to Brisbane and um, basically really never looked back, really. I mean, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be here after 18 years, if it wasn't the place to be. Exactly, so yeah, yeah Brisbane, for the last 18, so a bit about ship chartering, so um, it, it, obviously that's different to ship broking. Um, tell us a bit about uh, ship chartering, what sort of, uh, I The guess, broking and the chartering are linked. Uh, yeah, they are, yeah, they're linked, so a broker is basically the I'm trying to, to lay to, to someone who doesn't know anything about it, I'll try, I'll, I usually say it's the, you're the real estate agent of the sea yeah. in the rental space. Yes. Yeah. And so so all, what, yeah. I, what I do is I know where the ship owners are, mm -hmm. the people that have the ships, and I, I get people with cargo coming to me and saying, Frank, yeah. I need to have this moved yeah. from A to B. Mm -hmm. How can I do that? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, can you help me find a ship? Yeah. And usually then I'll go out and talk to different ship owners mm -hmm. that are not based in Australia, they're all based overseas. 
mm -hmm. um, and uh, hook up basically the ship owner with the cargo. Mm -hmm. And if it comes to something, then I'll get paid a commission. Yep. On the basis of how much money someone paid to get something moved from A to B. Yep. That's sort of in a simplistic sort of way mm. how ship broking works and ship chartering. So um, I'm, I'm the go between, uh, for want of a better word. Mm. Uh, between those parties that don't know it of each other, or they might know of each other, but prefer to have a mediator in mm. the middle. Yeah. Uh, because if something goes wrong, or uh, very often the party that charters a vessel mm. has very little understanding of charging, so they need someone like myself who knows charging very well to explain to them all the ins and outs and consequences of going down the route of actually charging the vessel. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of experience, um, a lot of uh, a lot of different, um, I guess, transactions that you've been involved in yeah. in the shipping industry over the many decades. Um, what's is there any particular? Uh, I don't know if you if you wanted to share any particular stories that sort of occurred as part of what you do in your job that was quite interesting or yeah, something I mean, that one, sticks out. One one that most people. Rise uh, their eyebrows to something that happened uh, probably about four or five years back. Um, uh, someone came to me and said um, uh, we wanted to import um, um, explosives um, for the mining industry, so mining supply yep. serv services. Uh, and uh, uh, they said, um, but the, the 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 stumbling block for them was that. Um, nobody wanted to help them to find a ship to go to North Korea to pick up <laughs> this cargo. Yeah. Uh, and it was completely legitimate. It, it's just because of the tension and, and, and the, the ban on trade, uh, there are very few ship owners that would take that kind of job on. Uh, because once they've got that in their logbook, that they've been to North Korea, they're then banned from other countries, one of them being the United States. Yeah. Um, so um, it, it um, took quite a while to find uh, the ship owner that was willing to do that. Uh, and the charter here in Australia paid in a premium, yeah. uh, as you can imagine, over and above the norm um, to, to have a vessel actually go to North Korea to pick up, to pick up this cargo. So um, most people, Anywhere in the world, when you say you had a ship that actually went to North Korea to come to Australia with explosives, would say, "How is that possible?" But it was totally legitimate. And you were obviously involved in that. Yeah. You know, so um, that was uh, one of those uh, those interesting ones where I, where I always say, "This was uh, with the shipping business. You never know what the next phone call brings." Basically, because yeah. there are some really peculiar things going on that. Uh, sometimes you've never heard of, and, and they happened once, and, 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 and possibly never again. Yeah, and a lot of, um, and the, you know, obviously you're the sort of person that I can see that would look at that and say, this is, you know, it, this is going to be a challenge for me, but I want to, you know, I want to remember this. I want to be able to say, look, I did this. Yeah, it's part of the collection of stories, I guess. Yeah, you know, I mean there, there are many, many stories. But you get, within life, you generally need to be challenged, Frank, and that's, yeah. that would have challenged you. You would have said, "Okay, let's. I want to make this happen. This is this is a challenge. I've been doing the shipping stuff. You know, yes, there's got challenges in all these things over the years, but I want something that's. But the, the, this the, is going to test me a little I bit. I guess the, um, the the beauty about the 
the shipping business in general is that there's really, I always tend to say there's never a dull day in shipping. Yeah. Um, the challenge is always different. Uh, never any day is the same as the, as the, the, the day before. Um, and that's what kept me interested in the yep. shipping industry because it is, it's just so colorful. Yeah. You know, I mean, you meet a lot of interesting people. Yeah. You get involved in many interesting projects uh, and situations. Um, mm. um, and the questions are always different. So you don't shuffle just paper from the left to the right of your desk mm. and, and do the same thing over and over. It's, it's, non, it's basically non-repetitive. Mm. So I guess um, being involved in that for so long, what sort of, you know, back four years ago, what sort of made you decide that you wanted to sort of look at business broking mm. uh, as a new as a new business hat? Because um, obviously broke, ship broking is the broking part, business broking is the broking part, so I can see the connection broking to broking. That's the only but, similarity is that it's in the words. Yeah, but uh, tell us, I guess, why and, and what you found. Yeah. Um, yeah, so a few years back, I, I saw that our boys were growing up faster as I do uh, when they get to their teenage years. And I thought, well, you know, the, the days of driving them around and looking after them to school, from school, sports, this, that, weekends, uh, and, and looking after them, which I had the, the luxury of doing, doing my shipping business. I had a lot of time on my hands. Um, I saw those days numbered as, as they were growing up, and I thought that um, I probably had to occupy myself with something else um, and, and uh, sort of fill that gap that would be left behind once they are sort of completely independent, as they are basically today. They're now 20 and 17, they have to ride their own car, uh, so they can go from A to B without our help, basically, as parents. And uh, I've started to look around, you know, whether I'm going to go and buy a, know, an ice cream shop or a subway or any of those kind of things. And uh, I just couldn't see myself standing behind a counter serving people ice cream or subway for that matter uh, or anything else uh, in, in that regard. So uh, I looked around a bit and stumbled over the, the industry of, of business broking. Um, spoke to a few people, um, looked at, thought it to be quite interesting uh, because it's more localized. It's more, it's more to do with the your local business um, and the 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 people that are they're coming to buy businesses are again people that very often come from outside. So it could be migrants, for example. Uh, whether that's from Asia or South Africa or the UK or whatever, or interstate. Um, so you were dealing with a lot of people, different types of people from different backgrounds and cultures. But on the other hand, it was a business and an activity where you had to be entrenched in the local community. And I've sort of over the years been interested in, the, in community in general. So, um, you know, our networking group, um, members of that, members of a Rotary Club, um, Brisbane Airport, um, stuff like that, um, interested in things like Oz Harvest, mm -hmm. uh, so community-based yeah. activity and uh, the business broking part of it that sort of for me fitted into that kind of picture mm -hmm. that I saw for myself 
Um, and so um, I basically took up the challenge of uh, getting involved in, in business broking. That it was the Finn Group, just happened to be the Finn Group. It wasn't by design necessarily. I could have done many other ways of, of getting yeah, into yeah. it and doing it, yeah, getting into it. I guess there's a bit of a backing of a system there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they've got very good systems. Uh, that, that lead you basically to do your, that, that help you to do your job so you're not completely uh, uh, freewheeling uh, in the way you approach the, the business uh, broking uh, activity. Um, and uh, there's a network of brokers throughout Australia, so um, that um, is helping in general as well, so because of the exchanges, and I'm particularly involved in, in the non-franchise environment, yeah. so if there was someone coming uh, along that had franchise uh, ideas of, of doing something in the franchising arena, then there are brokers, colleagues of mine that do that take care of that, and I don't have to get involved in that, which was something that I didn't want to do. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's how I got into into business broking, and um, it's been a wild ride um, mm. coming from a corporate background, uh, going out on my own in 2007 in the ship broking business, and literally doing that on an almost part-time basis, um, probably 20-25 hours a week or something like that on the shipping side of things. Um, business broking very different, um, there's a lot of paperwork involved, uh, it's a very long process. Um, it's a long game. Yeah, it's not something, it's not like buying and selling a house. No. You know, you can put a house on the market and within two weeks if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you've got the right house in the right street at the right price listed, you, you know you're selling. Which have been in a very short period of time. Uh, with business broking, it's very different. It's really um, you have to find the right person that's looking mm. at the same time as you're listing something. And if those two don't coincide, then Doesn't you matter. could be right, waiting for a year or two years mm. before you sell a business or you never sell it at all because the, the right person isn't, isn't yeah. just simply not looking. Mm. So I guess, what it, and that, that's the struggle is obviously knowing that it is a long game, getting used to that sort of mentality as opposed to ship breaking is not always a long game, I wouldn't assume. Um, and, that, and obviously, you know, in that sort of industry for so long, you, know, you get used to, to knowing it. So how, how do you sort of, I guess, deal with that, that sort of change is there anything that you sort of you sort of learnt and prepared and uh, in order to be able to to cope with that that type of thing? Yeah, I think it's the uh, the art of being patient mm. and structure yeah. in your approach. Yes. Um, whereas whereas shipbroking is a very quick dynamic environment. Yes. Uh, uh, business broking is the exact opposite. Mm. But that was exactly what. I mean, what I was looking for was something that challenges me. I mean, yeah. if you, I mean, I'm in my late fifties yeah. now, and uh, I thought, uh, you know, uh, there can't be the end of it, really, at the end of the day, of your business and working life. And I've always enjoyed shipping. I mean, I, I, I eat, drink, sleep, breathe shipping. Yeah, it's really me. If I if I start over again, I wouldn't do anything different. Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, doing business broking. Mm. Is a is is a is a challenge for me to do because I have to be detailed. I have to work with systems. I have to deal with people that have all sorts of worries and wants and needs 
be completely different to the to the shipping environment. Yeah. But that, that's exactly what the challenge is, and yeah. I enjoy that. I yeah. mean, it's something that makes you grow. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's it's a new experience, and it keeps you on your toes, and and, and you know keeps you young. I guess finally on business broking, I guess what's the sentiment out there with uh, the um, you know the listings that you you get the uh, and the, the buyers that are looking to buy the business. Um, what sort of, I mean, it's obviously it's a tough market, not only for trying to connect the dots, connect the buyer to the seller, um, but but obviously, you know, it, it's, it's businesses are never easy to sell. No. I mean, as an accountant, being in this business for 20 years, I've seen, um, you know, quite a few clients put their businesses on the market, and there's only a very, very, very small percentage that uh, end up not only just selling the, the business, but They've really got to do a lot of work themselves as the business owner to get it ready for sale. Yes, they? correct. Yeah, I mean the preparation of it, and that's that, that's I guess something that we see, and that's why business broking is a long game. Also, as a business broker, um, very often you just become uh, an advisor to business owners to make changes to their business in order to prepare for the sale of the business. So typical sort of exit strategy type yep. thing, succession yep. uh, planning and so on. Uh, and and you, you become you become an advisor to 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 businesses where things might not be quite right for the business to be put to the market and list for sale. And and I see that probably more often than not. So I'd say um, probably nine out of ten businesses that I look at are either not ready to to sell or they're just simply not sellable. Yeah. Um, just just the way it is sometimes. Yeah. I mean if, if an owner um, for example was was always to be an end all of the business and the face of the business, it sometimes becomes very difficult to sell it to the next person because mm -hmm. the next person can see that the business only really worked because of that one person that ran the business. Yep. And then it becomes very difficult to convince someone else that they could be that person. Mm. And most people can't see themselves doing that. Mm. But if you have a good structure and uh, you have a management in place and you're big enough and you're profitable and you show the profits, uh, then of course it's a different story. It's like, like I said earlier on about real estate, you know, if you have the, own the right house in the right street, Mm, yeah. and spruce it up and, and, and get someone to, to, to help you doing that, mm. uh, then it's sellable. Um, but uh, in business broking, it's, it's very much the same thing. Mm. Yeah, same with networking. Uh, obviously, um, you, you, you enjoy networking. You, you've been part of Bots now for the last few years, I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you mentioned Rotary before. I mean, uh, what, are these are the favorite types of networking that you like to do. Is any sort of other networking as well? Um, no, but there are, I mean, Rotary, I, I enjoy the, the fellowship um, with, um, with Rotary members uh, and the community sort of by service that the Rotary Club is involved in, um, which is always linked to the area that you're in. Yep. Um, and the, the BOTS uh, uh, networking group, uh, it, it's, it's more like a almost uh, like a friends club type thing in a uh, way in a, in a way it's not not um, the hard and fast sort of uh, only business type uh, connection or, or networking group and, and that's really what I was 
was looking at. I mean, there are obviously other networking groups out there. Um, but um, yeah, I enjoy that it's more of a social networking group other than, than being strictly business. Um, so uh, other than that, I'm involved only in, in, in fundraising for things overseas. Uh, I'm involved in... in uh, yeah, I noticed you sort of, you know, you got to do it. Um, what I do like, which obviously anyone who's sort of got any sort of charitable heart, I guess, is somebody that I certainly admire, because uh, I sort of do like um, you know, providing community service um, type things to the community as well, and obviously you know, raising money for different causes. Mm. Um, so I think you were, one thing I saw you, you were sort of also big on the recycling, was it? Yeah, I mean, we've done, uh, I've, I've sort of gotten into that through, um, I've, I've been on a mission trip five years yeah. ago. Mm. It has, which to some degree has something to do with my my getting into business talking, but that's yeah. another story for another day. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, on the mission trip to Cambodia, I got to see the the, the, uh, the massive amount of waste, uh, plastic waste that's been accumulated over there, and in places where it's not necessary. So I'm talking schools in particular. So if schools in Cambodia or other places in Southeast Asia, I mean, I, I just happened to be in, in Cambodia. It could have probably been in Indonesia as well as in the Philippines. Um, but this was in, in Cambodia. And uh, the, the people are just um, not, um, they're just helpless, really. They, they just don't know where to go. They're just not, they don't have the financial means at, at the shop floor, they don't have the means of changing anything. Mm. It is what it is. The, the schools only get a certain amount of money. The teachers only get paid a certain amount of money, which is which it's it's a miserable, miserable amount of money, which doesn't let them to be able to do anything. And so I got involved in uh, in water filtration over there, and uh, we are. Um, We've done two filtration systems in two different schools, one high school, one primary school. Um, I'm on the fundraising for a third one. Uh, now got involved with the local government, uh, got get some, you know, getting some support there, um, if nothing else, and moral support, but, but support as in opening doors so that mm. we have access to people uh, and uh, slowly sort of uh, gaining some traction there. It's been a, a, a long way to go, but finally see some some results and on the on the recycling part that you've mentioned uh, I've opened up accounts uh, with the two um, facilities here uh, return it and and uh, and, uh, and uh, Enviro bank um, where people can basically bank their bank their um, their bottles um, that they're collecting at home or in their businesses and I've got one business down on the Gold Coast who are a catering business with over 30 vans um, and the vans are, have, have basically pledged that uh, they go out to all the businesses where they go to and they collect back the empty bottles and they're donating that money that comes back from that to my um, that's really Cambodians, fantastic. Cambodian waste, wastewater filtration yeah. system yeah. Um, um, project. Yeah. That's fantastic, Frank, excellent. Um, so you've been to lots of different countries around the world. Sort of, do you ever count a number to work out how many you've been to? No, I don't really know. I don't, I don't really know. Too many? Yeah, too many. So I guess, but where, where sort of sticks out as the, the, the most remarkable place that you've ever visited that you say, well, 
I've got to go back there again uh, one day. Well, it's actually actually um, a little bit different. South Africa has been for me the most remarkable, and and I would say probably the region of Southern Africa rather than singling out a country. Okay, it's more Southern Africa, so we're including Zimbabwe. Um, and uh, Namibia and, and all the little places within South Africa yeah. because there are a few sort of uh, satellite states that are sort what, of... What is it about that that part of the world then? Um, the sunrise and the sunsets, the colour of the of the country when the sun rises and sunsets the people. Yeah. Uh, and I'm talking in rural areas, I'm yes. not talking about That's, cities. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and that mixed in with the wildlife. Mm. I mean, it's a. It's you do a, have a bit of wildlife, don't you? Yeah. Absolute magical place, mm. um, and and the most uh, amazing people um, mm. that live there. So, Southern Africa is is my favorite favorite place, but also my favorite place that I probably will never return to because I, I had my four and a half years over there living there were so amazing that I don't think I want to have that memory destroyed. On going back there, okay. knowing from reports from people that not as good. Yeah. Twenty-five, thirty years later, tell you what it is like yeah. today. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can, I can, I can uh, concur with that one. Yeah. So I've got great memories, and I, I think I'll leave it at that in terms of the memories. That's that's interesting, very interesting. But is there, I guess, is there anywhere around the world that you haven't visited also that you're intrigued to visit? Yeah, yeah, actually, with all the travel in Asia, I've never been to Japan. You've never been to Japan? Which is an, actually, I, I can't believe it even myself, that I've, I've never managed to get to Japan. Even my younger son, the 17-year-old, has been to Japan. Yeah. And I've not managed to actually get there. I've been to Korea and Taiwan and China yeah. and all yeah. this, uh, but never been to Japan. So, so how long was you, did your son go there for long? Or? No, he just uh, went on a, on a trip with his mates after after finishing school last year that went in January on a, a part part city part skiing trip okay um, and, and did that so um, yeah I'm, I'm really itching to go to Japan and that's on my bucket list if, if there is a bucket list then um, it's probably one of the number one items to do so certainly can understand especially if his son's been there and they're saying well, yeah yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, see yeah there's a nice. youtube video about that as yeah well, so i want to yeah. see what my son's experienced yeah. you know tokyo 38 million people yeah um yeah, also the food i mean we as a as a family enjoy japanese food yes. but of course i think everybody who's been to japan will will agree that what we eat here is uh, declared as being Japanese food is very different when you go to Japan itself uh, and the varieties of, of the Japanese food and the way it's prepared over there and the quality of it of it is is difficult to match yes. outside Japan. Yeah, yeah, interesting. It's a lovely place, Japan, as a, as a, some listeners might know, went there recently for the first time ever, Tokyo, around Easter. So yeah, I think you mentioned that the other day. Um, which is great. I guess with Brisbane, so the attraction, you've been here for 18 years, it's a lovely place um, to live uh, and I've been here as long, probably a couple of years even longer. Um, it's just, uh, what is it about Brisbane I guess, is it, do you think it's it's a small town that you get to know people are on, on a fairly good level? Yeah, I think um, it's small it's, it's enough, a good climate. It's, small, it's, it's, it's small enough not to be um, 
um, too overcrowded, I guess. I mean, I lived in Singapore um, and, uh, and I've seen many Asian cities uh, that are much, much bigger, of course. Yes. Um, so I know what it means when you're standing at a traffic light and there's a 2,000 people standing around you all wanting to cross the street. Um, so Brisbane is small enough uh, to have a small town feel about it, but big enough to make me feel like I, I am still in a metropolis, basically, of a big city. Because I'm a city boy, I mean, I, I grew up in the city. Um, so if you put me on a 20-acre on a, a yep. or whatever, block of land out in the countryside and I enjoy that for a weekend but that's about it usually I need to get back to the big smoke. So obviously born in Hamburg Germany do you ever sort of how often would you go back to the homeland? Um, I've just been back mm -hmm. a couple of weeks back. Um, Hamburg in particular? Yeah, yeah I was in Hamburg uh, visiting my parents and I was there last year as well so with my parents being still there I tried to get back uh, reasonably often as say once a year unless they're visiting Australia and they have been in the uh, in the past years they've always managed to come over here but as they advance in age it becomes less mm. less frequent and yeah. a little bit more difficult yeah so it, I, I basically have uh, in the last couple of years uh, or the last few years um, usually made a trip back home and uh, sometimes took one of the sons back and last uh, last um, last trip now just recently uh, mm. uh, my younger son was with me when we went to Hamburg um, so yeah um, I enjoy going back um, there's no doubt about that but it's often uh, it's, it's a it's a going down memory lane really yeah. type yeah. trip yeah. Uh, you know you go to places that you used to go to just yeah. to see what it's like any other sort of towns that uh, you like visiting in Germany other than where you come from no I mean I'm, a, I'm a, we have Maybe I'm one of the one of the uh, uh, the people because I grew up in Hamburg, but left and when I was in my twenties, it really is Hamburg that I enjoy the most. Uh, yes, I've been to many other places from Munich to Berlin to to uh, other provincial towns and so on. Um, but if you ask me, uh, there's only one city and town in Germany, and that's Hamburg. Yeah, fair enough. Excellent. Well. Thank you very much for your time here today, Frank. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having um, me. Thanks for the stories and and uh, listening a bit about uh, the shipbroking stuff. It was really very interesting as well. Um, so yeah, that's been uh, episode forty six from the Valley Podcast here on uh, Thursday, the twenty third of uh, May two thousand and nineteen. Thank you very much, everybody. There we go. It's fifty minutes. Yeah. How's the coffee good? Yeah, coffee's good. Uh.